Thank you, Austin, for reading our scripture tonight. We're glad that you're here. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together tonight. We appreciate your presence. We trust that our worship tonight will be acceptable to God and will benefit us, encourage us as we strive to serve God. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and specifically we want to look at the first eight verses of chapter 2 as we think about worshiping in prayer. Last week we talked about one aspect of our worship, and that being the Lord's Supper, and tonight we want to talk about the importance of prayer. And I understand that prayer is a very special privilege that we enjoy as God's people. And there is public prayer and there is private prayer. And so when we talk about prayer in worship, at least in this lesson specifically, we're going to be talking about public prayer. But uh, nonetheless, both public and private prayer, extremely important. I do want to say to those of you that are visiting, we hope that you'll come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We have a number of visitors that come our way every week, and we're so thankful for your presence. We want to keep our young folks in prayer tonight as they travel this week. I think they're supposed to be back on Friday. And I said this morning we need to remember especially Karen Ray in our prayers because she is the mother, I guess, of all those young people. And imagine being one adult among, well, I guess Jared and Anna are adults. <laughs> I guess we would classify them as adults. Don't tell them I said that, though. But you get the picture. And just put yourself in Karen's shoes. If I were in her shoes, I'd be probably searching online right now for an airline ticket, looking for a way back home. In our study tonight, we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to begin by talking about the exhortation to pray. If you look at the first two verses, Paul said, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, in all godliness and honesty. I want to begin by talking about the people who pray. I mentioned a moment ago that when we talk about prayer and worship, specifically tonight we're thinking about public prayer. But there are two aspects of prayer. There is public prayer and private prayer. As we think about the people who pray, all of us, are encouraged to pray. I think we would all agree that God wants all of us to come before his throne in prayer. Jesus himself is recorded as saying in Luke 18:1 that men ought to always pray and not to faint. Over and over again, the scriptures encourage us to pray. And when we go to God in prayer as a child of God, we have the privilege, the right to come before him, to enter into his presence, and to make our wants and wishes known. With regard to private prayer, there are times when we rope off a certain amount of time so that we can go to our Heavenly Father, express our thanksgiving, our wants, our wishes, our needs before Him. And we have that right. 
Peter said, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. But he said, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. But specifically, as we think about public prayer, when we engage in public prayer, all of us are joining together in the prayer. However, God has specified that a male is to be the one who leads that prayer. Now somebody might ask the question, how do you know that? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, if you drop down and note what Paul says in verse 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. That word men there includes both males and females. God's desire is that both males and females be saved. That's his redemptive will. However, if you look at verse 8, Paul said, Therefore I desire that the men pray everywhere. Now the word men here is restrictive. It doesn't include males and females. But rather what Paul is doing is restricting those who lead public prayer to males only. Now, males and females are all joining together in unison in prayer, but the one who leads that corporate prayer is to be a male. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is authority. I would freely grant that there are many, many women that can pray just as well as any man, if not better than a man. But in the realm of public worship, God has ordained, God has specified that males take the lead. For example, look if you would in verse, in verse 9, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety, moderation, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly clothing. In other words, the emphasis not, is not on the outward person, but rather on the inward person. And then down in verse 11, he would say, let a woman learn in silence, in submission. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over the man, but to be in subjection or to be in silence. Now, some people would say, this is a cultural thing. It's not cultural, but rather it goes back to creation. In verse 13, Paul said, for Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, in the realm of prayer, all of us pray. We pray publicly and privately. But when it comes to leading in that public prayer, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the will of God, the male, that is, men are to take the lead. And they are to live in such a way so that their lives are holy, without blemish, without, well, they're to live in such a way so that they would be fit to lead a public prayer. Then there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. We talk about the people who pray and then the particulars of prayer. Note what Paul said. I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. I want us to look at the terms that are used here because I think they're important as we talk about the particulars of prayer. The word supplications carries with it the idea of needs and wants. The term that is used by Thayer is indigence. 
Sometimes we talk about people who are indigent. That is, they have no material assets. They are in need. In a sense, all of us are indigent, aren't we? God is the one that bestows every good and perfect gift. God is the one that has lavished on us an array of blessings. And so when we approach the throne of God, we do so from the vantage point that there are times when we have needs and wants. When we are indigent from the vantage point that we have nothing but God. God is the one to whom we turn in times of duress, in times of trial, in times of tribulation. You remember the words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 4 when he said we are to draw, bo draw boldly under the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need? And then there is the word prayers. And the word here really, I think, carries with it the idea of public prayer. The term carries with it the idea of a place that is set apart and suitable for worshiping God. Now, I understand that privately we have to find a suitable place to enter into, into prayer to Almighty God. Jesus talks about entering into the closet and there praying to the Father. In other words, finding a place of solitude, a place of quietness and approaching the throne of God. And also think about the fact that we are approaching Almighty God. There is a decorum that ought to accompany our prayers publicly. Paul would talk about how we are to do all things decently and in order. And then the word intercessions. And that word means a coming together, a meeting, a conference. And there are times when we need a meeting, a conference with God, don't we? The beauty of public prayer is we can go before the throne of God as a family and we can lay before him our needs, our wants, our desires. We can petition him in times of need. We can have, as Thayer would say, a coming together, a meeting with Almighty God. Some of you have probably had the opportunity to meet with maybe some dignitaries or people that are high up the corporate ladder. Think about having a meeting with God in prayer. Because when we go before the throne of God, we have His absolute undivided attention. One of the earmarks of deity is that He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Hard for me to fathom how God in heaven can hear every person, but He does. Think about all the people scattered across the globe and people petitioning Almighty God at various times of day and night. And yet God in heaven hears those prayers. As a matter of fact, God delights in those prayers. Solomon said the prayer of the upright is his delight. And then what about the people for whom we are to pray? Note if you would what Paul says. We are to come before him with supplications and prayers and intercessions and the giving of thanks, that is with gratitude, thanksgiving in our hearts. Paul says we are to pray for all men, that is all people. The beauty of being a child of God is we can pray for people specifically and collectively. 
Just a moment ago, we were led in public prayer. And there are times every week when we specifically identify some people that need prayer. And then there are times when we will collectively refer to any number of people that need our prayers. That's the beauty of prayer. And again, I remind you of what Peter said. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul would say, In nothing be anxious, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. When Paul penned that letter to the church at Philippi, he was in a Roman prison. And Paul here was saying to those children of God that rather than living in anxiety and worry and fretting about the difficulties of life, go to God in prayer. And we have that right, we have that privilege. So we pray for all people and then we pray for authoritative people. Listen to what Paul said. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. We are to pray for the leaders of our country, for the leaders around the world. And there's a reason for that, and we'll look at that in just a moment. The people that are in authoritative places, do they need our prayers? They surely do. More than ever before. We ought to be on our knees praying to Almighty God for those who serve in various realms of our government, whether it be on a city level, a state level, a national level, whatever the case may be. We need to pray that they will use wisdom in their leadership. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in our study, and we're going to come back to this whole idea of the people for whom we pray. And that is the expectation of prayer. What should I expect when I pray to God? We talk about praying publicly, praying in worship to God. And of course, this would include private prayer as well. Paul said that we are to pray for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Now, here's the reason why. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty or reverence. So number one, we ought to pray so that we can live peaceably. Now think about that for a minute. We ought to be praying to Almighty God that we can live in peace. When Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul was writing under the domain of the Roman kingdom. And the Roman kingdom was adversarial when it came to Christianity in large part. When Paul would write his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, he would talk about his demise. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew that death was imminent. Paul would be beheaded, historically speaking, at the hands of Nero Caesar the time about A.D. 68. And so Paul is saying here that as children of God, we ought to be praying for all people, but specifically for authoritative people. Now there are two reasons, I think, or two things that maybe we ought to think about in connection with this, especially as it relates to living peaceably. We ought to be praying for our lawmakers and the laws. 
that are executed by these lawmakers. We need to make sure that we put the right people in office. Now I understand, according to Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. But God has blessed us to live in a country, a democracy, so to speak, a republic, and we have the right and the privilege to live in peace. We have the freedom of religion. We ought to be praying that we continue to put the right lawmakers in office and that they will enact the right kind of laws. Here's the point. If you put foolish lawmakers in office, you know what you're going to have? Foolish laws. That's exactly right. You're exactly right. Foolish laws. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You remember Daniel? Daniel chapter 6? Daniel, of course, had the opportunity to rise to power under King Nebuchadnezzar. He served in two political courts, first in the court of the Babylonians and then in the court of the Medes and the Persians. In Daniel chapter 6, a law was enacted. That law was according to the Medes and the Persians and according to the laws of that day, they were unalterable. They changed not. The law that was put into effect was that if any man made a petition to any god or man, save the king, he would be cast into a den of lions. Now, the people that encouraged King Darius to sign off on this law, I think they did so with the intent of bringing Daniel down. Brother Billy talked about this in class a couple of weeks ago. Their motives were impure. Darius foolishly complied with their request. They appealed to him, probably appealed to his ego. He signed off on it. Well, Daniel, of course, is a Hebrew. And Daniel, like any good Jew, prayed specifically three times a day. Psalm 55, evening, morning, and noon will I pray and cry aloud. In Daniel chapter 6, the Bible says that Daniel went home and he bowed in the presence of Almighty God as was his custom. The law was if you bowed and prayed to any God or any man other than the king, what would happen? You'd be cast into a den of lions. Just because that law was on the books didn't mean Daniel was going to change the way he did things, religiously speaking. And so when he bowed in the presence of Almighty God, just as he had always done, the edict was he'd be cast into a den of lions. That's exactly what happened. Now God saved him on that occasion, spared him. But here's the point. It was a foolish law enacted by a foolish lawmaker. Now you think about some of the laws that are on the books today. Some of the laws that our lawmakers have enacted. We are living in an increasingly intolerant country when it comes to Christianity, are we not? In many respects, those of us that belong to the Christian religion, we have become the whipping post. 
of those in the political arena. So we need to be very careful when it comes to the people that we put in office because, again, if you put the wrong people in office, then you're going to pay for it. Here's what the Bible says. Righteousness exalteth a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. We're interested in righteousness, aren't we? We're interested in people that will do what's right. We want to promote laws that will benefit us as Christians. Now, listen again to what Paul said. First, we want to live a peaceable life. Think about Daniel again. Here is Daniel. What was the charge? Worshiping his God in prayer. What was the consequence? Thrown into a den of lions. Wouldn't you hate to live in a country where one day, just because we believed in God, just because we worshiped God publicly, persecuted for it? We couldn't live peaceably? Wouldn't that be horrible? We need to be careful. Now note, we pray, number one, that we might live peaceably. Number two, that we might be able to live piously. That is, that we might be able to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul paid the price for serving the Christ. He suffered physically for it. But we pray to God for those who are in authoritative positions so that, number one, we can worship and serve God privately. Number two, that we can worship and serve God publicly. Listen again to what Paul said, that we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. I want you to think about your children, and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. What is America going to be like for them? What's America going to be like in 50 years? If it is hostile towards Christianity today in some respects, what's it going to be like in another 20 years? What about another 50 years? Those of us who have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, we have to think about the future, don't we? God holds the future in his hands. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know the one who holds the future. And so we need to be praying that we can continue worshiping and serving God privately and publicly, just as we've always done. We talk about the liberties that we enjoy. And many times we take our blessings for granted, don't we? Sometimes you don't know how blessed you are until you lose those blessings. Think about your health for a minute. I remember saying not long ago, sometimes you think you're Superman and you think you got everything going for you and then all of a sudden, just like that, what happens? You lose your health. And you find out you're not, you're not Superman after all. And so you step back and you think about how God has blessed you. God has blessed this country immensely. I want to continue to be able to worship and serve God just like I always have, privately and publicly, without any fear of interference by the government, without any fear of being 
physically harmed. And so again, the blessings that we enjoy, we ought to thank God for them. We have a lot to be grateful for. One of the things that Paul said, we are to offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks. The freedoms that we enjoy in this country are a blessing. You think about all the blessings that you enjoy in this life. What if God were to just all of a sudden pull those blessings? Where would you be? When's the last time you got on your knees and thanked God for your family, your faith, your freedom, for all the blessings that you enjoy. Let me tell you what, if we were to suddenly lose the blessings that we have in this country, religiously speaking, if those, if those blessings were to be stripped, it would be tough, wouldn't it? Now here's the question. What if those blessings were stripped? What if tomorrow, all of a sudden, we were to lose all of the freedoms that we enjoy, religiously speaking. What would we do? We would do just like Daniel did. We would do just like Peter and John did. You remember Peter and John? Called before the Sanhedrin council? Questioned by them? They were commanded not to teach nor preach in the name of Jesus. And their response in the long ago we cannot but speak the things we've seen and heard. Another occasion, Luke records the statement made, we ought to obey God rather than men. Push comes to shove, we take God every time. We're going to serve him, come what may. Paul understood the difficulties of living a Christian life. Read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written with a backdrop of Roman persecution. God's people in the latter part of the first century were suffering. Some were being martyred for the cause of Christ. And what John was saying in the Revelation is you be faithful even in the face of death. And the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2 verse 10. Persecution was difficult in the first century. But they had to hold to their faith, just as we must hold to our faith. Now there's a third thing I want you to see in our study. And that is the exaltation of prayer. First, there is the exaltation of the Savior. Listen again to what Paul would say in verse 3. We read this verse a moment ago. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. That is, when we pray for all people and for authoritative people. Or rather, we pray for all. Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The exaltation of the Savior. Look at verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I think about the will of God and the work of God. Paul here is saying that God's eternal will is that man be saved. Well, who's going to save man? God is. Through whom? Jesus Christ. The one who functions as a mediator. That is, the go-between. Look at verse 5. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, a wedge was driven between the Creator 
and creation. And so Jesus Christ was the go-between. When Jesus came to earth, he did so with the intent of bringing God and man together. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 16? How Jesus has reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross? Reconciliation. First there was alienation and through Jesus there is reconciliation. There is the bringing together of two parties. That's what Jesus has done. And so the will of God is that all people would be saved. The work of God rested on the shoulders of Jesus Christ who functioned as a mediator. He is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. Mankind had been abducted by Satan. Hijacked, if you please. And God paid the ransom price. You know what that ransom price was? The blood of his son. As Peter would say, we've been redeemed, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And so to think that God in heaven has favored us with the blessings of redemption. And so first of all, there is the exaltation of the Savior. And secondly, there is the evangelization of the sinner. There is the invitation. Go back and look at verse 4 again. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Did you know that as a member of the human family, you have an invitation from God? Did you know that? This is a time of year when many of us get invitations to graduations, to weddings, to anniversaries. But you have the greatest invitation of all. Did you know that? The invitation is given through this book called Scripture. The instrumentality through which people are saved, God's Word. Listen to Jesus. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. You know what the promise is? I'll give you rest. You have received an invitation from not just the king, but the king of kings. Not just the Lord, but the Lord of lords. When I was a student at Lipscomb many years ago, one of my college professors received an invitation to one of the presidential inaugurations, and that was a big deal in that day. Let me tell you what, you have a greater invitation than that. And the invitation is from Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus is saying to you, come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And the promise is, I'll give you rest. Now we talk about the instrument through which God saves. It's called truth. Listen to what Paul said. God desires all men to be saved. That's both male and female. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. The beauty of God's word is it has the power to liberate you. We talk about being in bondage. Enslaved to a life of sin. 
God can set you free through his word, through the truth. I want to encourage all of us to be people of prayer, to pray privately, to pray together, corporately, in public. It's a tremendous privilege. A lot of blessings we enjoy in Christ. One of the greatest, at least from my vantage point, is prayer. To think that we have the opportunity to go before the throne of God. To stand in the presence of the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of heaven and earth. What a great blessing. It might be that you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. I want to encourage you to come to Christ. I want you to know that God in heaven loved you enough to send his son to die for your sins. Now you might ask the question, what do I need to, what do, I need to do to become a child of God, to become a Christian? Here's what the Bible says. First of all, you need to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. Then you need to repent of your sins, that is, to turn from a life of sin, Luke 13, 3. The Bible then says that you have the opportunity, the privilege to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Son of God, just like the eunuch did in Acts 8, verse 37. The Bible then says we are to be baptized, to be immersed in water so that every sin can be washed away, Acts 2, 38. The assurance is that if you do that, God will forgive you. You'll be in Christ. Not only will you be in Christ, you'll be in the church of Christ. That is the church that belongs to Christ. And by the way, he's the savior of that body, Ephesians 5.23. And if you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. If you're here tonight and you're not what you ought to be, could I encourage you to come to Christ? If you're here tonight, maybe somehow, some way, you've gotten off course and you want to come home. God said... In the long ago, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing.